Strachan and Bell together. There's Cooper breaking through. A chance now. This will be the fourth ball for Aberdeen. Cooper puts it in with good measures. Well, suddenly it's become a rout. Of course, when things are going wrong against you, if you don't get the breaks of the ball, Cooper in with Stewart. He didn't really know where the ball was, but he got the break, and as you say, it's a schoolboy's dream being able to take your time, knowing that really all you got to do is crack it into the back of the net. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Here We Go, the Aberdeen FC podcast. Now joining us tonight, we're very fortunate to have Richard Gordon back with us. Still the supreme ringmaster of a fit bad discussion, but tonight he gets to wax lyrical about the Dons without the danger of Chick Young butting in. How are you doing, Richard? <laughs> yeah, fine, fine. I'd be happier if we had had a happier start to the season, but yeah, always looking forward to this. Then, making his podcast debut, we welcome Simon Cato. Now, Simon's a lifelong Dons fan. He'll also be making sure his kids are being brought up in a faith as well. As a trained legal mind, Simon will come in useful when we move on to discuss the tangled web that is the SFA disciplinary procedure. Hi, Simon. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks, Richard. How are you? Not so bad. Not so bad. And even better, because making a welcome return, it's Martin Clunes. Martin, how do you like the new place? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice, to be, nice to be here again, Richard. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, we move on to discussing, first off, the game against St. Johnson at the weekend. Everyone was uh, really keen for us to get three points on the board and finally kickstart the season, but it didn't quite pan out that way. Uh, first off, there, there was an injury list to deal with. Uh, Richard and Dermot McInnes has certainly made reference to it uh, in the press today. Um, seven players in total. Um, out uh, injured or unavailable. Now, do you think that's a, a valid excuse for the sort of patchy form at the start of the season, or maybe even a bit of a concern that some of the signings haven't been able to hit the ground running? I think you could you could look back over the, the past three transfer windows. There haven't been too many players who were brought in that have actually hit the heights that we've anticipated. I mean, Lewis Ferguson clearly did. I think Mikey Devlin will be a very good signing as well. Um, but through the the list. Since then, very few have made a, a sustained impact in the team. And it's, I mean, it is worrying. It's worrying because I think the point Derek made was that there's, there's barely a team in the top five to, to do without the kind of players. And clearly there are players there who would have a, a big contribution to make to the team, you'd imagine. But I would also have hoped that we would have had a squad which was sufficient to gather more than six points from, from five teams. I mean, it's just, it, it's not kind of acceptable return. Derek McInnes won't see it as an kind of acceptable return. Um, and I think that the biggest concern of all is the form. The fact that the form has generally been poor in the league matches. We don't look like scoring goals. And um, right now, it is, um, <laughs> it's a bit scary. You know, when I see, you know, I mean, I thought, no, I mean, I would love to see the dogs every week. I can't because of the job. But what I have done is seen the other teams. The other teams that we need to look at are rivals to challenge Celtic uh, are all looking way better than us like well, there's a positive start to the show that we always look for. Thank you very much, Richard. Uh, it's normally me that brings the tone down, so I'm glad we've got somebody else to, to take us there. But you're absolutely right to say that um, it's uh, doubly worrying, not just because we've been patchy. We've been patchy in seasons before. If you look back at our record in the opening five league games under Derek McInnes, we've been on six, seven points before, quite a few times actually. But I think the thing is that Hearts, for example, have started very well. There's again, obviously been a lot of money spent at Ibrox. You can expect Celtic will pick up and be round about the 90-point mark from the end of the season. I just worry, Simon, that it, obviously because of the market we operate in, a couple of the signings haven't played a great deal of football in the last couple of years. Some of them injury-related, some of them just form-related. And I do tend to think loan signings in particular are short-term signings. They do need to hit the ground running, don't they? Yeah, I think so. And I think Wilson and, and Hoban in particular uh, have got very poor injury records and are now injured again. Um, Wilson hasn't really played much football in his career 
to be to be perfectly honest, at the senior level anyway. And uh, like Richard said, I've I've had the benefit of going benefit in inverted commas of going to see Hearts a couple of times this season as well. And you can see that that they they started with the group matches in the League Cup, which I think enabled them to get some of the rustiness and getting to know each other out of the way. And their big signings, uh, Hailing and Nick Piaccio and Naismith in particular, are now all uh, up and running and and firing in all cylinders. And meanwhile, um, I think our best performance of the season was against St Mirren, but it was the young players who'd been at the club already, um, and annoyingly they're now injured as well, or two of them are in, in Wright and Ross, that had really carried the team. And I think... Uh, I, I think we have a lot there, there's a lot for the new signings to do put it that way um, I'm not convinced really by any of them apart from Devlin at the moment Martin not just the signings are an issue uh, the, the shape the shape has obviously been similar to the one we've used over the past couple of years uh, and particularly on Saturday uh, we obviously kept to the 4-3-1 4-3-2-1 with Chris Forrester acting in that sort of link role first half neat and tidy enough on the ball but nothing really happening going forward at all. Is it time for Derek McKenna's finally to properly abandon the uh, his trademark system? It's, it certainly looks that way. I mean, as you say, it was, it was very neat and tidy in the first half, um, but no, we didn't do anything with it. You know, we saw lots of the ball. Um, you know, after the game, even Tommy Wright conceded the fact that Aberdeen had no the lion's share of possession, but you know, we didn't do anything with it in the first 45 minutes, and it was it's really frustrating and Derek's got the formation that he wants to stick to um, I'm sure we're going to come to come to some of the players in a minute no, some of the players just it doesn't seem to be that that formation suits them and I know that no people will say no good players can adapt to a different system that's all well and good but um, the players we have at the moment um, they're some of them appear woefully out of form um, They just haven't hit the ground running at all This season to start with That includes the new players And that includes some of the, the players from the previous season as well um, And the 4-2-3-1, 4-3-2-1 Whatever you want to call it It just doesn't seem to be working at the moment um, We're lacking, I think we've identified before We're lacking someone in the midfield it's Like a number 10 who can kind of operate there Stevie May doesn't seem to be managing Up front by himself um, You know he needs somebody there to support him, um, and he isn't getting that support because the the players just you know I I, I feel that at the moment we're kind of trying to fit some some uh, square pegs into round holes and it isn't quite happening for us. Simon, what's the fear? The manager deserves a bit of credit for acknowledging it at half time and changing things up. At what point does the old adage of it becoming insanity to keep trying this system with the, the players that are available when it's I mean, we finished second last year, but I think there's, there would be valid concerns about the fluidity of the team last year as well. And certainly the start to this season has been a bit lumpy and a bit, a bit stodgy at times as well. Yes, I think if you look at the last six months of last season, we had Kenny McLean in really excellent form and he scored a number of important goals and made a number of important goals for us and we don't have anyone doing that at the moment really and the goals, if you if you exclude the St Mirren game, our goals have really been either spectacular efforts or penalties and so we don't look like we're going to score normal goals. If Stevie Mays on his own up front, then uh, I think he looks isolated, he has a great deal of di- difficulty in, in taking the ball in and, and bringing others into the game uh, Sam Cosgrove looks better at the lone striker role but realistically if he's going to make chances, he's not a goal scorer and if he's going to make chances for others then he's going to have to have somebody playing up front with him I guess my concern is that 4-4-2 feels like quite a regressive tactic that most teams can set up to, to combat quite easily and if we were going to go to two up front, we'd probably be more likely to look at a 3-5-2 or even a sort of 5-3-2 with, with the, the wing-backs um, uh, going up and down You know the, the sides. I mean, whether that would um, really make us any more attacking in the long run, I don't know. I'd be very surprised if Derek in the long run went to a 4-4-2 formation. Interesting that you see it as regressive, Richard. We've obviously seen um, a couple of notable success stories using that throwback 4-4-2. In terms of a tactical flexibility, he has always been wedded to this to this shape, to this setup, with the two wide players being absolutely critical to how this system operates. But uh, there comes a point, surely, when he when he has to think about changing things. What has been for me has been the trademark during Derek's time is how often he's tried to move away from four two three four. And actually, it hasn't worked. And eventually, um, at some point, usually two or three months into the season, he's actually gone back and 
And that's then become a recognized formation. I, I mean, I don't see that that's a difficult formation for players to play. Uh, if you're looking at the guys we've got right now, Gleason should be ideal for one of the, the central, the holding central midfield players alongside Shinny. There seems to be no reason why they can't play that. They play 4 4 2, and they'll get swamped in midfield by the majority of the, the, the team. Because of the way teams set up now, that all the managers see the importance of having that extra man in the field, it seems. And I think you're relying an awful lot on the two white players, A, being informed and creating, but also um, at least one of them having to do that double shift of not only creating from the wing, but getting back in field to support in the field. So, I mean, I'd be surprised if they change to that. Um, I cannot remember, I don't even remember at all, a performance where I thought we'd be comfortable to play three at the back. And it's, I mean, I know Willie Miller has palpitations every time Derek tries it, and, um, you know, he's a pretty good judge. I mean, for me, the 4 2 3 1 is a very good formation. Uh, I think it's a formation that offers you a bit of solidity, but it also gives you the attacking options. And if we put Niall McGinn on one side and Gatman McKay Steam on the other, you should be creating opportunities. Maybe these are two players for whom, to me, that, that set up is ideal. And it's all about them getting the ball in. I mean, it signs up to it, right? Kenny McLean's a huge one because he was, he was superb, particularly in the second half of last season. I think Lewis Ferguson has, has shown, obviously, a different stage of his career, but I think there's enough to suggest there that he could become very good in that position. Um, but with Lewis out, I mean, Forrester just seemed to get more impact at all uh, from what I saw watching the, the game in the chair. Um, so, it, it is a big problem right now. And you persist with Stevie May, um, you kind of get the sense that because we've invested so much money in Stevie and, and the desperate, we're all desperate but to, to turn around there. That's now, what, 41? We've been waiting and it just hasn't been quite happening. I mean, you know, for me, James can't wait to see him play. Um, you get a fit, get him in the park, I think he can make a huge contribution. For me, it's got to be time for Anderson to, to get a start. I mean, in the times we've seen him this season, he's been very lively and I, I think we could Potentially provide the goals, but we need to find the answer very soon. Well, if anyone knows the pitfalls of an Aberdeen manager going to three at the back, it's definitely Willie Miller. Obviously, what happens when you don't have a goal threat is that it uh, puts pressure on your defence. Uh, they know that any slip could be could be three points completely lost. And I think that was kind of the case, Martin, with it with the St Johnston goal. It was a very very straightforward goal, wasn't it? Just from the corner kick. Shea Logan's uh, got a lot of stick for, for losing his man, but he and um, the goal scorer, um, whose name has completely escaped me, they both travelled a huge... Di- uh, McMillan, that's right. They both travel a huge distance within the box. The ball comes into the front front post area. Are you maybe expecting uh, this, uh, the defender on the post or, or Joe Lewis to come and try and sort that situation out before it gets to that point? I think that you're looking at maybe the someone. I, mean, I like the idea of having someone on the post for at, at corners. Um, I know that you know it's a kind of hot potato, and everybody has. You know, everybody seems to have a different opinion on it. I personally like having somebody, especially at the especially at the post nearest where the the side where the corner's being taken. I like having someone on that post there. Um, they did, yeah, Logan and McMill. They did travel quite a bit of distance into the box as well. Um, Gleason was kind of, you know. Kinda at the post, but he was drawn forward out of the way. So you think maybe Gleason could have been covering there, but it's a lapse and it's probably a lapse in concentration from a, from a few of them. I think it's unfair just to blame Logan. I mean, yeah, you know he's meant to be marking the guy, and he does he will he will get a lot of the blame for it. Uh, but you're looking at you know you're looking at having someone there helping in defence. You're looking at probably if if the if the man who if there was meant to be a man in the post, you're then looking at the keeper maybe looking to do something as well. But um, it just seemed to be that. A little bit of a catalogue of errors, but it was very simple for them as well. It's you know, it's a simple kind of it's a simple kind of ball, and we're kind of we're used to seeing St Johnston you know score these type of goals. Um, you know, I know we talk about them being well organised, and Tommy Wright's got them well drilled, and all this kind of kind of nonsense. But you know, going forward, they were actually kind of they were actually pretty decent on on Saturday. I thought that. Um, they were a lot better than we've seen before. Whereas, you know, we kind of we've been critical of them before for being a physical team and you know, for lumping up to the lumping up long. They, they did some, they did a lot of that on Saturday, but they did actually try and play a bit of football, and they were they were pretty decent. So half time, we make the change that we talked about before. Let, let's dive a little bit deeper on, on Chris Forrester, if we can, Simon. Um, first competitive start of the season 
and hold off after 45 minutes. Now, partly a victim of the system, but he, he I mean, he was neat and tidy, but he was doing it in areas nowhere near where he really needed to influence the game, wasn't he? Yeah, I... I am yet to be convinced that Forrester is good enough at all. To be honest, I, I, I tweeted something along those lines about a month ago and I got quite a bit of stick back from some Dons fans about giving our signings a chance, which is maybe a fair point. But um, I, I have yet to see anything that makes me think that he can actually take part in a meaningful way at this kind of level. Um, when he came on against Rangers, um, when a lot of urgency was required, I didn't feel that he had that and I didn't feel that he... Uh, really had the confidence to put his foot on the ball and try and be creative there was a lot of attempted flicks and tricks that resulted in us losing possession and I think that the performance that you've described where he's looking neat and tidy but not really doing anything positive with it is probably down to a, a lack of confidence that he doesn't feel that he's got um, the, the, the sort of ability at the moment or the, the confidence to, to do something more creative and I, I look enviously at, at Hibbs who have signed uh, uh, Daryl Horgan who's in a similar position to um, Forrester who has gone straight into their team signed in a free transfer and has forced his way back into the um, Irish squad I thought Horgan was the best player when he played against um, Aberdeen and uh, I look at that level of performance and compare that to Forrester and I think that without being too hard on him he is seriously going to have to up his game uh, to demonstrate that he can actually do it at this level. Signs have looked very promising in pre-season, haven't they, Richard, as well, which makes it all the more surprising. Yeah, um, I, mean, I mean, I think very similar to last season. I was, I was in three teams generally by the signings, and I thought, um, I thought we're going to be well set up for a positive start. Double played well in the two games against Burnley, um, but from there it, it just hasn't kicked in. I mean, Simon mentioned um, Daryl Horgan there. Stevie Mallon is another one. Um, and actually you know, plays more central and that's that helps the field. I mean there's another guy who has, has come in and made a huge difference there and had a bigger job uh, probably for the Bernie in terms of replacing the gear in the game. Um and and that's I mean it, it's fine lines, isn't it? I mean, he's come in, he's got a few goals early on, he's got the confidence and he's he's playing superbly. Um our new signings have come in haven't made any kind of impact. Um I mean I'll be honest, I am at the point where I can leave can't make much of a, an assessment of Chris Foster because I've, I've barely seen him and even what I mean I watched the whole game in Alpha um, I don't recall really any impact that he, he made in the game at all um, so it, it, look it's worrying and I know the point you made that because I had to check back as well which I just did see I mean there have been some you know, obviously we remember the eight wins in a row there was four wins in a row at the start of last season but there have been other seasons um, but there's just there's something about the way we're playing right now that is concerning and it, as I said it's, it's probably stacked up against the fact that, that other teams are looking better and are playing better football than us just when you thought it couldn't get any more depressing yeah, keep it going, Richard. Keep it going. Uh, <laughs> to, to, to keep the depressing thoughts going, uh, looking back at your, I saw that you had uh, listed the points totals from all um, Derek McInnes's seasons in charge. The difference this year is the the quality of the squad. So in in years gone by, when we had relatively modest points totals, the six and the seven, um, a we had a strong squad. And, and the backup players in the squad seemed a lot a lot stronger too. Um, but also we had had the European runs that had maybe formed a distraction. So we'd been to, to Kazakhstan or, or, or whatever, and there was maybe more of a reason, some uh, an explanation behind uh, these these results. And you could you could feel confidence that the team might might take off. Whereas um, I, I don't feel like that at all at the moment. I have to say I think um, Motherwell, who are a strong physical team, will give us a, a, a a very hard game at, at the weekend and um, you know we really need to start getting points on the board and, and I think that there is a difference between this season and, and seasons gone by I think the European thing is a slight red herring because in previous seasons the European runners generally one or two exceptions come to an end just before the start of the league season as it did here because obviously we started later in round two um, and the competition started later this year as well. Ah, uh, but we got practice in against. Uh, yeah, we got, got practice more in against weaker we've got teams. More games. That point is yeah. absolutely taken. It has actually reminded me of the start of season 2016-17 when we took again six points from the first five games. Again, we'd only scored four goals from the first five games. We looked similarly overly reliant on our wide players to create something. We had absolutely nothing coming through the middle because Kenny McLean 
in his original role, pushed further up as a number 10, simply wasn't working. And it took James Madison to come in and, and actually kickstart things and get things going. Um, I guess we've got to hope that James Wilson operates on a, a similar basis, to be perfectly honest. I think the other thing was, in those seasons, yeah, we maybe did or did not have a stronger squad. That remains to be seen, I think, as the season plays out. But certainly we retained players which we knew were able to change matches on their own for us. We've lost, obviously, down the years, we've lost Hayes, we've lost uh, we've lost McLean. We've even lost the, the, the guys who could come off the bench and be something completely different, like Peter Pollitt, for example. And, um, first and foremost, we've lost Adam Rooney, who you could rely on and throughout that season, um, you know, carried on beyond the 20 mark as he'd done in the, the seasons previously. Rooney's another loss, obviously, um, but you know I would challenge anyone to, to look at the last six months of last season and, and say that Rooney really fitted well with that squad as well, uh, the, the style of play as well. But whether we should have let him go, it's a hard call. I mean, obviously the player himself was very keen to go, Richard. You might have you might have a bit yeah. more insight into this. I don't know if you've heard anything. Or I just um, I just don't think it's a hard call at all. I mean, for me. Um, if you've got a guy who's got 20 goals, three or four seasons on the trot, you play him in the team and you, you, you provide him with ammunition. Give Adam really a chance in the box and, uh, and generally speaking, he'll score it. We've got in that sport who looks capable of even coming close to what Adam really did over those years. And, and the, the fact that, I mean, look, he, yeah, I think he probably had a different confidence because he wasn't, Derek wasn't playing him all, all the time. He wasn't getting a run in the team. And, and the bottom line is he was told that this season, would be exactly the same as last, and that's why he pushed ahead with the, the one he moved to Salford. I'm not sure that uh, Rooney this season would have been a 20 goal a season striker though Richard he uh, in the last season he was looking uh, very slow there were games where he had limited very little impact indeed and he, he, his, his effectiveness seemed to be reduced substantially my, my issue is not the decision to sell Rooney it's the failure to find another one that's the problem what we need to find is a guy who can score those goals because it's very very important and we don't have one at the moment I'd still rather have had a Rooney up there ahead of Stevie May or Sam Cosgo, uh, or indeed Nicky Maynard, who was in the squad last season. Well, let's move on the discussion to talk about a striker that definitely isn't scoring goals, uh, and that's obviously a worry um, for anyone who calls himself a striker. But Sam Cosgo came on at halftime on Saturday, and um, well, Sports United actually highlight, highlighted this as well, but his link-up play and his ability to actually draw some of the attacking midfielders into play were crucial in getting us up the pitch and giving us more of an attacking intent. So as much as we have and no doubt will do in the future criticise Sam Cosgrove Martin, uh, let's give him a little bit of praise for Saturday's performance. You're right to point out that sports scene really singled him out and showed some of the some of the things he did there. I mean, he certainly looks like the type of forward who would who'd benefit from playing up front as part of a two. Um, I think probably Stevie May is that is is that is would come under that bracket as well. Um, Cosgrove, you know, I'm not I'm not advocating he ever gets played out wide, but when he was coming out wide, he was winning balls. He was able taking taking the ball down, trying to bring bring people into the game, and that's kind of you know that's kind of what you want. Um, you know. The way we play, and if we're not going to change the way we're playing, then I guess I guess that that's what he's going to be. He's going to have to be the kind of guy who drops back and break, you know, comes and gets the ball, and maybe tries to bring someone else into the game. But when he came on, he was very good, and he came on at a point when we were doing, you no, know, we we got back into the game and we were looking quite dangerous, um, you know. And I, I'd like to see, you know, we have seen him before, you know, some of the games he's played previously, where, you no, know, he seems to be able to play. You no, know, I'm not saying he's, you no, know, some sort of, you know. Pele level kind of footballer, but he seems to be able to play the ball with his feet as well. Which um, he isn't just some kind of big target man. Um, he's obviously going to get used as a target man because of his height, but he has aspects of his game. I mean, you know, is he going to be that guy who's going to get fifteen goals a season, twenty goals a season? No, sadly, I don't think he ever will. Um, but he's certainly a decent option to have there. I agree, um, and I think we've seen enough from Sam Crossgrove in a few of the matches to, to show that he does have. That ability, and he is able to, to link things up. My concern is that um, where we are right now, I'm not sure we can afford to play a striker who doesn't score goals, who links up nicely, who brings other players into it, but doesn't contribute um, when it comes to the most important part of the game. Uh, yes, uh, all those years uh, having a go at Adam Rooney because he didn't contribute enough outside the box, quite. Um, I, I think 
the other thing that I spotted, certainly from the second half, it was much more encouraging, but it was only really Gary McKay-Steven that was really willing to drive on beyond the front men. Now we're getting at a decent second half, but we probably needed more of that from Graham Shinney, from Niall McGinn. And I also kind of feel that um, we got the equaliser after our best period of play, that 20-25 minutes, and then almost seemed to settle for the point, um, Simon. I don't know whether you, you agree with that. I think it's if you, if you if you look at the celebration uh, after the goal, McGinn is getting everyone back to the halfway line, and it did look like the team were galvanising themselves to to go for the win. But so I wonder if it's not so much anything that was coached or instructed to them, but just a, a sort of natural reaction that you know we don't always get a great result at St Johnston. Uh, a one-one draw would be within the realms of the acceptable. Let's just make sure that we we, we keep that. And I'm not sure it was anything more than, than that because I do think that at that point the momentum in the, the game was, was with us. There was an opportunity to, to go ahead and, and win the game. I know we'll go on and talk about the penalty incident, but we might, might well have had a penalty in, uh, late on in the game which could have won it. But uh, I think as you get further and further into the game, uh, the mentality becomes, you know, neither team really wants to lose and a 1-1 draw is a vaguely acceptable result for both teams. It's surely, Richard, the, the sort of venue, the sort of ground where Aberdeen would be expecting three points. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think if we're playing um, at the top four form, if we've got that confidence in the side, and you know, I've seen us, I've seen us lose there, but I've seen us win there plenty of times. I just think it was important, really, really important, given the start we'd had. Um, and given, if you look at the table now, um, how far back, I know it's very early, and you know, there's no point panicking right now, but with, you know, we're behind the just we're behind Ebbs, we're significantly behind Hearts, and obviously behind Celtic as well. Um, so I just think it would have been a really good game. Um, obviously, it, it piles the pressure now on Motherwell, and beyond that, we've got a couple of five minutes to road, then we're at Celtic Park, so I mean, this is a tough little spell that we're coming into, and going into on the back of a win. Um, and I must admit, when when we got the equaliser and knowing how much time there was left, I, I kind of anticipated this pushing on and getting it. And maybe that's the difference this season. Um, whereas previously, um, just in this, this great run we've had under Derek and, and all the second place finishes, those are the kind of games we maybe did just push on. And perhaps we had that with the X Factor somewhere in the team that was, was going to ensure a great trait. And right now, we just don't have it. I, I, I mean, I don't think for a minute, I don't think we just set up the point, but. Or certainly it wasn't a conscious decision, maybe subconsciously, and that just seeps into the, the players and their attitude. It's actually quite strange if you look at the raw numbers. Dermot kind of said an abnormally few number of draws throughout his first few years in charge. We generally get beat way more than uh, teams with his win record have done in the past for an Aberdeen team, if, if you get my drift. You know, the teams that have had that sort of win record around about the 57-58% mark have generally lost fewer games than we lost, but we drew an abnormally uh, small number of them. Um, but that's definitely coming home to roost this year. I think we've drawn about 40-45% of the games we've played this uh, this calendar year, which I know is not how we operate in football, but uh, it's interesting to note just the, the sort of drop-off. Um, yeah, let's talk then about penalty kick claims because the game was littered with them, quite frankly. Uh, St Johnson could have had one. Uh, Callahan decided to pole vault uh, Joe Lewis rather than do the usual thing about allowing himself to, to hit uh, Joe as he went down. Um, Scott McKenna had a had tussle with uh, Joe Shaughnessy, which uh, went on for about three minutes and nothing was uh, being done about it whatsoever. Then we have uh, the guy Mackay Stephen um, challenge in the well, the very final act of the game, basically. Um, none of them certainly in real time looked like uh, stick on penalty kicks. Martin, it, I just wonder though, given everything that's happened over the past week, and I saw this actually being referenced by a former referee in the in the media last Friday Saturday. Is, it, is there a possibility of referees simply avoiding and I? I'm very surprised that Willie, uh, Willie Collum would be the man to do this, but is there a possibility of them avoiding taking decisive action at flashpoints for, for fear of being shown to be wrong? Um, I think there's a possibility. Um, I mean, we can't pretend that it isn't an issue. Um, now, the SFA have taken a lot of stick over the week. The referees, by extension, are probably looking at that, seeing you know, they don't want to make a wrong decision. So if it's anything, 
if it's anything, no, if it's a fit, if it's looking like what they would see a fifty-fifty, they're probably not going to give it uh, because they don't want to be seen to be given something that then is shown to be soft. I mean, you no, know, you've seen, you no, know, we don't. We'll, we'll go over some of the decisions in a moment. I'm sure from the the previous games, but you look at some of them during the game. You know, uh, at first viewing, no, I don't think any of them you would say were were absolutely nailed on. That must be a penalty. The McKenna stuff in the box was, you know, I think there was two or three challenges from a, from the, from a Logan, Logan throw-ins. Um, McKenna then stayed back and Considine came up for one and then they were all over him as well. I mean, they're not going to give penalties for that, um, unfortunately. You know, it's like, it's kind of wrestling in the box. It's a bit of a thing. You know, outside the box, you might get a foul for it. But it does look like the referees are under, the referees are under a lot of pressure at the moment. It's only going to, it looks like it's only going to get worse. I mean, dare I suggest that you no know, one of those type incidents happens in a really big game you know a cup semi final or a final we can, we can have an we can have a meltdown no what there's a lot at stake here and i think you know the referees have got to have going to have to take ownership you know what that what that solution is whether they get you no know, linesmen behind the goals now or they get var or whatever but it just seems to be that they're missing quite a lot of decisions at the moment um things that you know you might have been might be given if you had this you no know, more help and i think that's what I would like to see happen for the refs. To get, get, let's give them more help. Let's help them do the job a bit better. Um, it's all very well us sitting moaning about, oh, Willie Collins, hopeless, or Craig Thompson, or Clancy, whoever. Um, but if the, if the, these guys need help to get the decisions right, the SFA need to do something to help them out. I mean, Richard, uh, Willie Collins is definitely not one to shy away from controversy or shy away from taking big decisions usually. Um, do you think there's any merit in the argument that referees are going to become more circumspect about uh, about making controversial calls? They will tell you not. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, these guys, they, they work incredibly hard. They train incredibly hard. Um, I know they beat themselves up and they get things wrong, um, and they want, look, they, they want to get it right. I mean, I, I, really, I think Willie Collum has, he does have the habit of, of reacting far too quickly, um, and one of, you know, I remember from some of the older refs, said the one thing you, you must do is you count to two or three, you know, you give yourself, you're not pulling the card, the red card out of your pocket as you're running across to the incident. You're thinking about it, you're, you're processing exactly what's going on and, and making that decision as you arrive at it. I mean, I think I, I don't think um, I don't think Callum was a, was a penalty. I mean, clearly the sporting guys showed that it was a penalty um, for Aberdeen in the, right at the end of the first chance. I must admit I watched that in Alpha. I watched the replay. I still thought Boston got the ball. And it wasn't until they slowed it down and showed you the freeze frame that you could see that Boston had actually made contact with GMS. I mean, like, the referees. And there were a, a number of incidents of the course of the weekend. Um, you, you cannot point the finger at the referees. It's too close, it's too quick, and I can understand why those decisions are being taken. I agree totally with um, with Martin there. They, they, they do need support. Um, with some kind of VAR would be brilliant, but uh, you know, we were talking about this, we made one of this at the weekend, that, that you could be talking, they, they've done an assessment, they reckon it could be cost up to £10,000 a game to have VAR. Now, no doubt there'll be ways of scaling that down, but Round it. I mean, even just with Premiership matches, you're looking at two million quid a year, and I mean that's just that's two million pounds that Scottish football, not to say it doesn't have, and then you get a sponsor in to, to cover it. I mean, that would be a big, big plus for referees. It would be an opportunity, and the refs they 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 are quite happy to have as much support as it takes. I mean, I, I think part of the issue is that um, I know we'll get onto this, but when they do make the decisions, um, they don't always get the backer of the support from the Scottish FA. That they would want, and and I think it, you know that, that you're only human, and that is bound to impact, I guess, on, on how you approach things. Um, I mean, I would hope that the decisions so far this season aren't being a part in, in what referees are doing right now. Um, but it will certainly, it will certainly give them second thoughts. I would imagine from time to time. Well, let's move on now to actually talk about that, to talk about the disciplinary system as a whole. I think there's, there's really two key strands to it, isn't there? There's the reviews of incidents which haven't been picked up by the Majesty officials. So what used to be called trial by sports scene. Um, so we've now got, I believe, and Simon, you can correct me if and when I go wrong here, but there's a team of three former referees will sit and review any well, flashpoints. Who identifies these flashpoints to them in the first place? I'm not sure, but ultimately, it must be a unanimous decision 
on any potential red card incident for the case to be cited. And they can only cite red cards. Um, so that's the first strain of it. There's also the aspect on some of the things which have been not picked up when people maybe expected them to be picked up. Look at the Naismith, Stephen Naismith uh, on Johnny Hayes or um, Alan McGregor the other week. Um, it would appear that the SFA interpretation of the violent conduct rule or petulant challenges, it would appear that they might not have got this interpretation correct as they're looking for clarification um, from FIFA's uh, IFB board for this. Um, basically, the advice they've been giving to their referees this season is that anything which is considered a petulant challenge would only be a yellow card, hence the downgrading of the Morales challenge, for example. So, so Simon, that's, that's one strand, right? Uh, yeah, the, the only the only thing I would pick you up slightly on there is that it's not just um, red card offences, acts of simulation which give the simulator's team a substantial advantage are also picked up by that group of referees which would have been uh, dealt with by a yellow at the time but can be dealt with by a ban if they're dealt with subsequently. Okay, because about four or five years ago we did have, the compliance officer was pretty active on that front, weren't they? And, and that seemed to have tailed off slightly. In fact, no, last year we could probably claim that the compliance officer was pretty silent. The compliance officer is still the compliance officer. They, they, they yeah. gather the information or the, the replays or whatever are gathered from various sources. And, yeah. and it becomes quite clear of those of a weekend what incidents have taken place. But it is the compliance officer who then refers that to the panel of three former reps. Okay, but as I say, last last season, for example, there seemed to be lots of cases which weren't being picked up, when in past seasons perhaps they were. We seem to be back to a situation where the compliance officer is perhaps more active, and they're looking at uh, looking at events, or at least being directed to look at uh, events. The referee panel. The other aspect is obviously the fast track appeal system. So, in this case, it's again it's a tribunal panel now. Simon, Richard, is this also former referee panel or is it a wider group? No, it's not referees. It is uh, the judicial panel is made up of a group of people who have volunteered to be on the judicial panel and have been specially trained by the SFA. Now, that group includes former referees, but many of them are practising solicitors or advocates or sheriffs or people who are not legally qualified at all. There's a range of people that are involved in that group. Okay, and the benefits of having that range would be? If you, if you attend these kind of hearings or look at the submissions that are put for them, they quite often stray into quite complicated legal territory. And it is useful, I think, to have at least one person who is uh, legally qualified uh, on the tribunal. Other tribunal members are, are usually people who have played football or been involved in football at some in some capacity at a relatively high level. So these are not um, inexperienced people. These are, are uh, people who, who have been involved in the game for, for a number of years or people who have significant legal experience or both. It strikes me that the remit here is to, to correct obvious mistakes rather than necessarily arriving at a decision that most observers would view as appropriate. Is that right or wrong? Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely right. They, they can only, and I think this is, this is critical because if we go and look at the um, Craig Thompson decision, I can kind of maybe analyse that in a second, but um, they are only allowed to overturn a red card when it has been an obvious refereeing error. And that's different from a situation where they might have made a different decision themselves at the time. So if if you look at the, the, the Devlin, you know, I, I know I'm conscious I'm going to probably go on and say things that are maybe a bit unpopular, but I think one thing that we can probably all agree is that um, Craig Thompson made an absolute mess of this uh, in a number of respects. Um, first of all, he got caught behind the play because he assumed that Considine was going to win the first header, so he didn't keep up with the ball. So when the when the ball was flicked backwards from, from Considine, he was yards behind the play. He then missed the, the shirt tug and he didn't get any help from his... Uh, 
assistant referee in relation to that. And then he did exactly what Richard j just described as being an example of poor refereeing, which was the with the adrenaline pumping, he raced yards up the field, gave himself no time to think about it properly, and, uh, and issued the red card without really assessing the situation correctly. And in fact, when you look at the before and after uh, shots of the of the foul and then where the free kick was taken from, the ball was placed a full 10 yards further down the field, which gave an indication that his view of the his perspective had been that the player was closer to goal than was actually the case, which would have been a relevant consideration to the question of whether there was an obvious goal-scoring opportunity. Um, but the difficulty for Aberdeen in that appeal was that the shirt tug by Brophy is considered an incident on which the referee had made a decision not to give a foul. And it's really important that all of these appeals and, and these retrospective actions shouldn't detract from the fact that the referee's decision is final. And that's a, that's a, a key aspect of, of football, which uh, VAR is going to take us a bit away from that, uh, and, and these appeals take us a bit away from that. But ultimately, uh, the fact that Devlin had his shirt pulled is irrelevant to the question of whether Devlin ought to be red-carded, because the fact is we didn't get a foul for that. So then all you're left to look at is, did Devlin foul him? Well, there was there was slight contact. Brophy dived or, or went down in a situation where he probably could have stayed on his feet. But the fact is that he was fouled. So that then leaves us with a decision about whether there was an obvious goal-scoring opportunity or not. And I can see why the tribunal came to the decision that they couldn't say for certain that Craig Thompson had made an obvious error even though they probably or they may not have come to that conclusion themselves, uh, you're making a judgment on whether the player is going to get into a position to have a shot at goal before there's a covering defender uh, gets to him. And it's really hard to say with a degree of certainty that uh, that, that wouldn't have happened. So that's why the, the Devlin decision was decided the way it was. Um, so I... I, I I think the conclusion I've reached is that it was bad refereeing, but probably the right decision to turn down Aberdeen's appeal. And I know that virtually every Aberdeen fan disagrees with me about that. We had a briefing in at the BBC last week. Stephen McLean um, was in. And it was really interesting, actually, that there were a number of incidents that he took us through and explained. And, and probably gave um, those, you know, there's lots of guys who are involved in the programme, gave us more of an insight into the difficulties that referees are having right now. Partly because of the, um, the the way they have to interpret the guidelines that are set down by FIFA and then by the Scottish FA. And the point he made regarding the Devlin incident was that when they, when they were looking at it, looking at the appeal, what they have to look at, it, it's at the moment, the freeze the action essentially, at the moment of the contact between the players. So as soon as Devlin makes any contact with Brophy, um, irrespective of how slight, they look at the situation there. Because obviously, as, as Brophy tumbles over and players then come around, you're looking at an entirely different scenario. At that point, um, Stephen McLean <laughs> pointed to the screen and said, I think we can all agree um, that Ray Thompson did not make an error in, in those circumstances. And I went, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure I do agree. Um, I made the mistake of saying, you know, my money's on Shane Logan getting back there. And said, well, but the problem is we can't look at the player and say, oh, he's a little bit faster than one other player. You know, we have to just... We have to just assess the situation. It's not about assessing individuals. And, and Derek Ferguson was there. And he made the point, look, a player running with the ball runs more slowly than a player running without the ball. So he, his point was, irrespective of who the defender was, he felt the defender was going to get back and cover it. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think Simon is right there. There, there is a huge... I, I think a huge majority of people um, feel that was the wrong decision. But a great legal mind like Simon's has just found out exactly why the um the panel got right and like, I guess it's 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 difficult to argue too much about that. But there are a couple of things come out of that. Uh, firstly, it's a very tiny procedural matter, Simon. I just want to clarify, uh, do they, does this appeal panel also need a unanimous decision or is that a simple majority? The, the tribunals, the, the, their deliberations are not public and they will tend to go out of the room and come back with their decision. Now, 
My understanding is that it's not like they reach a decision by voting. There is usually a consensus reached, and whether that's a unanimous vote or whether there is someone who is disagreeing but will go along with it or whether they do actually reach a, a vote, I don't know. That's different from the reviews by the matchday officials because they're viewing it separately and independently, aren't they? So that is correct, and if you don't get all three of them, then it doesn't go forward. Okay, I guess the other thing, the other strand that really comes out of this, Martin, it's that it almost makes the situation worse because there is an appeal system in place. It's almost going to frustrate supporters more because that opportunity to apparently correct what, what I think most football fans, and we're looking at it through red tinted glasses obviously, but most football fans would see as through the entire passage of play a mistake. There appears to be an opportunity to correct that. But there's not. So that's that's frustrating, isn't it? I, I try as be- the best I can to take off, as you say, the red tinted glasses. I think we'd all pr- we'd all enjoy football. We'd all prefer that to make that er- if the referees got every decision you know, right and everything was what it was fair. I suppose you could call it. Um, unfortunately, it, it, does, it isn't quite going to go like that. I remember a spell where there have been so many incidents that have so many people have felt wrong. I mean, I think back to. The last season, where there was a stop round challenge against Ross County, which Celtic appealed and appealed only because it meant he could play in the old firm game. Um, and I think they were as surprised as anyone that Scott Brown actually got <laughs> up with the, the, the sending off on appeal. There have been occasional high profile incidents that have gone, people have gone, whoa, I'm surprised by that. But to have as many um, in a row like this, they're all piled up on top of each other. I mean, it, and, and I think that's, that's a big, big problem for Scottish FA because right now, there is no great confidence in the whole procedure among fans, <laughs> among clubs, uh, particularly the clubs that feel wrong so far this season. Um, and th- what they're also doing, I suppose, is, is, is setting precedence for the, the future and putting even more pressure, I guess, on themselves. Uh, I mean, I'd be surprised um, if it doesn't settle down a wee bit, but... You know, if there are two or three more incidents like this, this could be, it's going to get completely out of hand. Richard mentioned the the Scott Brown incident last year, but probably an even worse one was uh, Ryan Jacks, who uh, got a red card for a headbutt against Hibbs rescinded. And uh, I have to say, I cannot understand how the tribunal could have reached uh, that decision. In in relation to the decisions this season, I, I think that the big there, there are two big issues for the SFA here. One was articulated quite well in a response to a tweet that you received, uh, Richard, where uh, somebody commented that you shouldn't need lawyers or legal advice to understand how this process works. It should be sufficiently simple that everyone can understand it and see it as fair. And there is a problem if that's not the case. No question. Um, and I think there's been some confusion, which the SFA has clarified with their statement last week, about this refereeing panel as opposed to the judicial panel, and some confusion about whether a group of former referees were involved in the, uh, in, in the uh, appeal um, process rather than the, the, um, the disciplinary one. So that, I think, has been, has been helpful to get that clarified. The other issue here is that there is a perception, mainly because the Devlin and uh, Dicker incidents are from non-old firms, clubs and then you have the Alan McGregor and the uh, Morelos incidents where it looks as though the old firm or supporters feel suspicious that the old firm is being sort of treated favourably and I actually don't think that's that's the case the the SFA is trying to apply the new rules um, as, uh, as well as they can there is an issue I think around the question of what um, you know th- th- this idea that violent conduct must involve excessive force or brutality I think is an unfortunate expression because it implies that um, a number of offences which fall short of brutality wouldn't necessarily be a, a a red card and I think we'd all probably like incidents like the David Beckham on Diego Simeone those type of um, petulant flick outs of the boot don't really want to see players red carded for that but equally if you do uh, kick out with your studs um, then probably we would think that that would be a, a, a red card and it's really just making sure that the players and supporters and everyone else who's involved really knows you know, what's allowed and what isn't I think most of us watching the old farm game would think that Alan McGregor, if the referee had seen it, would have been sent off for that. 
all those mentions of old firm, you better just hope that no Celtic supporters listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Glasgow Derby. Is that better? <laughs> so, um, Martin touched on that earlier. Um, the club, obviously, were as frustrated as a lot of their supporters were. I think uh, one of the points raised in their statement was about the SFA adopting bar. Now, clearly, it would be an expense. Um, but ultimately, don't you think, Richard, it's, it's a it's where we're going to head, isn't it? Why not adopt it now and get ahead of the curve? Really, it would where we head. But I mean, it is the, the finance. I kind of outlined the, the finances earlier. I mean, essentially, you're looking at. I mean, you know, to, to, to make sure that it's likely to be practical, you're, you're going to need at least six cameras. I've thought at every game. Um, so, so that goes. One of the points to be made: where do you even get the referees to? To actually act as far officials and having enough difficulty getting um, new, younger referees in at the moment. I mean, I don't think that's an issue. You, you need one additional official, and there are plenty of former referees, I'm sure, who could, um, could fill that in. Ideally, we would have it. Um, and it may be, it's, it, even if it's a scaled down version, um, any kind of assistance to help the referees reach the correct decision has got to be worth trying. Um, you know, there maybe there's a company out there um, who is prepared to come up with a, a finance. As I said, it's been suggested to me round about two million pounds a year um, to have the, uh, and that's just for the, the top flight. Um, I mean, I don't think I know there are the whole kind of for one day if you're not having it for all the leagues. But I'm sorry, that's rubbish. You know, you use what you can afford to use. You use what facilities you have, um, and it would it would be. I know the English Premier League trialed it over the weekend, didn't they? I think there were five games. It wasn't um, effective in terms of, or didn't affect any of the decisions as a team, but they were they were trying it out. Um, and I think, you know, in English football, of course, there's, there's money swimming around everywhere, so they, they will have it, I'm sure, before too long, I think. <laughs> I'm not sure if um, if I'll still be able to watch football by the time our finally comes into the Scottish game. There's also no guarantee that any of these decisions that everyone's up in arms about at the moment would have gone a different way if there was VAR. You know, I mean, if you look at the, you know, we've talked about the Devlin one, the Dicker red card, for example, the player's leg rolls over the top of the ball and catches the, the Hearts player's ankle. Um, I think a lot of referees seeing that again would say that was a red card. Uh, and, and, and to... I think they would be split on that one. All thumb or rule of thumb that I tend to apply is, would there have been an outcry had he not sent him off? Well, I don't think there would have been in Gary Dicker's situation. I don't think there would have been in Mikey Devlin's situation. Even going back to Morelos, I don't think it would have been an outcry if, if he hadn't been sent off um, in that game either. So um, you're right. I mean, the, the, well, and even during the World Cup, you're looking at some of the decisions, and, and you weren't altogether sure. I always, I mean, some of them, of course, the referee was having to live over and over and over again. If you're reaching Apple, then there's, clear, there's not a clear and obvious error being made, is there? If you're having to, to watch a replay seven or eight times to eventually come to some kind of decision. So you're right. I mean, I think there would still be. Disputes, um, <laughs> we had a bit of theatre to, to the game, the excitement as you wait for the referee to go across. Well, let's leave uh, behind for at least a week or two um, until the next controversial moment in the uh, review system, the um, the current state of affairs there, because it's um, it's bound to rear its head again, I suspect. Um, I'm sure the noise will die down for a little while, but let's look ahead briefly to the visit of Motherwell on Saturday. Now, Martin, we, we really, by now, should know exactly what to expect with the visitors on Saturday. Yet, last season, we repeatedly struggled to cope. There's a real danger of being sucked into their style of game, isn't there? Well, the way we're playing at the moment, there definitely is, yeah, because we don't seem to have, um, I suppose the best word for it is we don't seem to have an identity at the moment. We seem to be kind of Jekyll and Hyde in different halves at the game. So the, pot, the chance is that they come here, they... They have their tails up really early in the game, and they can imp- they impose the way they want to play on the game. Which you know, I mean, I saw I saw bits of the bits of the game against the played at the weekend against Hearts there and them, and though they were they were decent, um, nothing nothing no too much to write home about. But you know, they you know they performed well enough. Um, you know, if you let Motherwell do what they're good at, which is you know, it's being kind of physical and making sure that. Making sure that they can, you know, we can't get past and things like that. That we're going to have a tough afternoon, um, and we need to do. We do need to try and just, 
impose our game, try passing the ball, try keeping the ball, keeping possession, um, not wasting the ball with long aimless punts up front. Um, I think that's one of the things that was a little bit disappointing I found on, on Saturday was um, when we kept the ball, it was just it seemed to be let's get it up front as quick as we can. Um, whereas I'd like to see is just keep the ball, just try and hold on a little longer and wait for that key pass, wait for that moment, and then we can try and do something creative with it. I, I was at that game at, at Far Park, uh, the Motherwell Hearts game the weekend. I mean, Motherwell Arsenal, I mean, they have evolved a little bit. Um, they, they certainly didn't have the, the kind of, when you think of Bowman and Moult or, or Bowman and Maine, they didn't have the two pattern rams up front. Certainly Curtis Maine leading the line. But Danny Johnson, who they've brought in, he's been, a, he's been a good start. He's got four goals. So far, a very different type of player. Um, you had Rose Campbell, bigger man in midfield. You know, I mean, they, they weren't they weren't just quite as direct. They weren't just quite as physical. I mean, they, they were at times, and they had to be, um, because Hearts um, were also quite physical during the course of the game. There's but it's not just quite <laughs> such an agricultural style as it, um, it has been in the past, as far as I can see. I think they will have... They will have noticed us our uh, poor defending at corners on Saturday at St Johnston, though. So I think uh, that's if if we're missing missing Devlin and Ferguson, two of our bigger lads, then uh, you know that that's an area that we definitely have to improve on. Well, Devlin should be back on Saturday, obviously. So um, uh, yeah, I was going to ask you, Richard, just uh, just how they looked on on Saturday because they're struggling to reach the heights they did last season but then again in the league they didn't really reach the heights last season that often they did finish 7th or 8th last season didn't they it was the cup they were they were a tremendous cup team last year yeah they were um, they just, and you get that don't you from time to time they just seem to they, they found what was needed to, to win cup ties in two of the two finals um, yeah look, as I said I think they, they've evolved a little they were playing a bit more football um I mean, I think they're still a dangerous team. They've, they've got still got the three big uh, central defenders. I think Richard Tate, thinking that left wing back position that he got moved across to what the middle of last season, he, he can certainly um, hurt you um, there as well. Uh, they've got the pace of Freer to bring on if they want to, to introduce him. Um, Maine hasn't, you know, he had a great burst of goals going last season. He hasn't looked just quite as um, deadly and prolific so far this season. Um, but I mean, if we, I mean, we are going to have to be 100%. I mean, because of, of the way Stephen Robertson has that team, I mean, they generally they come out, they come out fired up, they contest every single ball, um, and we are going to have to be right on it right from the start of that game. If they sniff blood at all, we can be in for a really, really difficult afternoon. Well, let's leave behind the uh, current worries about our form, the frustrations about the disciplinary system, and let's embrace the warm nostalgia of looking back at some of our memorable Don's free kicks. Uh, so we, as ever, went out to Twitter and uh, looked for your suggestions, your memories, and uh, let's kick off with uh, what we will call the Charlie Mulgrew section of this podcast. Firstly, we've got Mike Teven, who picks a goal from Mulgrew against Motherwell in August 2008. I think that was towards the end of that game, which was um, entirely forgettable other than a very sweet Mulgrew finish into the Richard Donald end. Another suggestion from John Bleasdale, who goes for a Charlie Mulgrew free kick against Hibbs on the final day of season 2008-2009. One of the goals which obviously secured fourth place that season in European football, but that day itself overshadowed by Jimmy Calderwood's sacking after the final whistle. And uh, Martin, you also picked a Charlie Mulgrew goal. I did. Um, I tried to pick something that was a little bit um, out of left field, because um, I know that there's obviously lots of suggestions of some of the more famous things. Um, I picked this one mainly as it's, um, it brings back, you know, it doesn't bring back the best of memories. It's a kind of, a kind of warning to myself, which is from Saturday 20th December 2008, um, away to Inverness Cali. Charlie Mulgrew scored an absolute um, pearl of a free kick in about five minutes in. Now, the reason I pick it is um, it's memorable for me mainly because I didn't actually see the free kick. Um, it was one of those stupid days where the bus picked us up at half past seven to head up to Inverness. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> some drink was taken, got into the ground fine, and then I really don't remember anything about the first half. I, I, I can see on, on the footage of the game, um, I'm behind the goal, facing the wrong way, looking for looking for people, um, and you can see me quite clearly there um, on the footage. I'll see if I can dig it out. It is on YouTube somewhere. Just a shambles, um, and it was and it was freezing as well. Of course, five days before Christmas, um, I was sober by half time. I was so cold. 
Um, it was really, it was a nightmare. And it's a kind of, I pick that, it's memorable for me because watching it back, it's one of those that brings back that memory of a kind of warning to myself. Basically, I say to myself, Martin, see when you go on away trips to see the Dons, maybe just take it a little bit easier on a drink. <laughs> Uh, well, there's a podcast topic we haven't explored yet. Uh, you know, how drunk have you been at a football match? Or the drunkest you've ever been at a football match? Bizarrely, I'm also going to go Charlie Mogu. For, for a guy which left, who was only here for two years and spent his last six months basically sulking, um, I'm going to pick two Charlie Mogu free kicks in the same game against Celtic in January 2009. Both of them from the right-hand side, right by the touchline, Curled in to the back post, both of them put into the net by Xander Diamond to help us beat Celtic 4-2. The man was a threat, unfortunately, for a large part of his uh, two seasons here. He was one of the few attacking threats we possessed. Um, And he's still doing it, of course, uh, now playing in the championship with Blackburn Rovers. To give you some balance on Charlie Mulgrew, Simon, do you want to just say a few words? Yes, I'm going to be the sorbet that will wipe away the unpleasant taste of the Charlie Mulgrew section just now. And uh, I, I can't abide him, to be perfectly honest. So, uh, no, I'm going to choose um, Hisham Zero Ali, um, his free kick at St Mirren in uh, January 2000. Uh, you can see it on YouTube. It is an absolute rocket. Uh, totally unstoppable and uh, he's a player who he's been mythologised really by the Aberdeen support but at that period he didn't always get a game he was kept out of the team by the likes of Winters and Stavrum and then latterly Daddy in his career at Aberdeen but uh, he had tremendous skill we've had very few players who could take a free kick like that one it's an absolute beaut You certainly weren't the only one to bring up that one Uh, Stuart McMichael Craig Suter um, Judith uh, Morgan and someone going by the name of Reginald Ramsbottom, who, of course, because everyone tells the truth on Twitter, must be his real name. Uh, he says, Zero Ali at Love Street had taken a group of non-Don supporting pals and we watched Zero terrorise a player who had been touted as Scotland's next great defender, uh, Baltacha. And when he curled it in from 25 yards, we all went mad as it was the least he deserved. Uh, yeah, just a, a, a brilliant moment. Again, we obviously scraped a 1-1 draw in and it was a catalyst for, for reaching that cup final that year. A few more from Twitter. Uh, Mark Gordon goes for Stephen Glass's first Dons goal uh, against Dunfermline in the relegation playoff in 94-95. When you think about three-kick goals, certainly direct three-kick goals, you think about beautifully struck shots into a top corner, much like Niall McGinn's one was on uh, Saturday. This was a strange one. This kind of somehow found a way through the wall without even getting a deflection. Bounced over Guido van der Kamp in a Dunfermline goal and almost apologetically nestled into the corner of a net. A, a hugely important goal, obviously, as well, to the opener in that game. But uh, certainly not, not a beautiful strike or, or, or a stunning bit of technique, but uh, an important free-kick goal, absolutely. Um, one which was a stunning piece of technique and uh, executed perfectly with James Madison's last minute winner in our first ever encounter with uh, the Rangers in 2016. Uh, that's been picked up by, as you'd imagine, quite a few people, including Aaron Grieve and Jill Mackey. Uh, someone else who is very close to the hearts of the Don support, Ian Jess, his goal in a 5-3 win at uh, Tanner Dice against Stand United is the pick of uh, Bones on Twitter. Uh, Paul Quinn's winner against Celtic um, a couple of years ago this week um, is the pick of Craig Leddingham. Obviously, it wasn't Paul Quinn himself with a free-kick strike. Just imagine how that might have looked. Uh, it, he got on the end of Johnny Hayes's, um well, let's just say hopeful lump into the box from a free-kick out wide, uh, which travelled all the way through to Paul Quinn's uh, right boot. I think Johnny Hayes had been sent off by that point, Richard. You know? You're absolutely right. It obviously wasn't Johnny Hayes. It's normally me being pedantic and picking up other people's errors. I'm glad I've got someone else with that level of... Uh, Stereotypical dull lawyer, sorry. Pedantry. Um, <laughs> so, um, Richard, you're going to rescue us from, from this recency bias and, and you're going to take us back to one of the all-time classics. I mean, I, I would love to just throw in a few more Charlie Mulgrew um, <laughs> just for Simon. But there was, there was one against Hamilton uh, early on uh, in the game from about 30 yards out that he, he actually gave the keeper the eyes and he curled in at the near post and it was a magnificent strike. Now, and, and the other one I did think about, and I think you'd said um, a few people have mentioned this online as well, Andy Dow. Um, <laughs> the 99-2000 season, it's the seventh game of the campaign. He still have scored under Theodore Debbie 
Andy smacks one into the top corner, runs off to celebrate and gets blue. We're over celebrating <laughs> our first goal of the season. It's just like Christmas, for God's sake. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, I, like, I mean, immediately, you say to me, Aberdeen free kick, the only one, the only one that stands out of my heart, um, and it was the home game of those against Bayern Munich in the quarterfinals of the, the Cup of the Cup run. Strachan and McMaster get all mixed up, apparently. Job friend, the commentator, gets all mixed up, but he doesn't realise that it's um, something they've worked on in trade. And then pretends that he had realised that when um, he commented on the actual replay. And I was thinking, oh, the police gets his head in it. We're back in the game, and 60 seconds later, we're in the front. And I, I just, I mean, I was in the south stand. I was just about level uh, with, with the free kick to see. And, you know, I, and, and we all, I mean, you saw the Martin so striking McMaster shouting, sort of, what the hell are you doing? And, and we're all going, oh, my God, what are you doing? Come on. And then all of a sudden, of course, absolute mayhem. Um, there will be no finer defeat ever taken by an Aberdeen player. Um, <laughs> the importance of that to beat by a Munich in this goal and lift the trophy. So, um, yeah, it is, what's that now, 35 years and, and counting, but um, it's, it will forever be done in history as the Aberdeen defeat. Well, you won't be surprised to learn that... Uh... A couple of other people picked that one as well. Stephen Farrell and uh, Finn Hall, who says you'll never get a finer moment than the McLeish one versus Bayern Munich. To be in that crowd then and witness that was the height of football joy. The expression on the faces of the Germans was priceless. He's going a bit all Barry Davis there, but uh, never, we'll, we'll forgive him. We'll forgive Finn for that. Uh, a couple of uh, guys who you might have forgotten their pituitary careers uh, brought up. Nicky Lowe's goal against... Uh, Ross County, wasn't it, around Christmas time 2014. Uh, Ryan Watson picks that one. And uh, Ewan Wilson recalls Hugh Robertson scoring twice from pile-driving free kicks on successive Saturdays at Petaudry at the start of season 94-95. Um, he did that and then barely got picked for the team for the rest of the season as we stumbled into a relegation battle. Uh, Fraser Curry picks Jim Betts' stupendous goal at Ibrox at the end of uh, season... 87, 88, um, possibly 88, 89. Uh, 3-0 win there on the final day of the yeah. season. He says that uh, the video footage clearly shows Chris Woods asking for four people on the wall. It wouldn't have mattered if there were ten on the wall. Bet's goal was going in regardless. Andy Dow's goal against Dundee United, which Richard mentioned. Billy G and Duncan Rothney also picked that up. Uh, personally, I was up at the back of the Richard Donald stand that day and basically ran down the steps right to the front of the top tier of the Richard Donald when we scored. Um, yeah, and we still ended up getting beat and losing. But um, these are the things which, and just quick mental calculation, 540, 580-odd minutes without a goal will do to you. Duffy picks Peter Weir's goal versus Partick Thistle on the run to the Scottish Cup in 1983 uh, in the quarter-final in a 2-1 win. And finally, uh, someone going by the name of The General on Twitter. This is a good one. I like this one. He suggests that the uh, best free kick in Aberdeen's history was the Real Madrid free kick in the 119th minute uh, of the European Cup Winners' Cup final of May 1983. It wasn't a goal, but it was. Um, for those that don't know, it was uh, the one that had Brian Gunn praying on the bench um, and Peter Weir looking round from his free kick, uh, from his position on the wall, in the hope that it wasn't going to nestle in the bottom corner as it whistled just past the post. Uh, so those were your most memorable Don's free kicks. And uh, as we said, now McGinn's one on Saturday uh, was a, but it probably won't be remembered that uh, well because of the uh, because of the low key nature of the game. But it was a very very fine finish. So, my thanks this week to the returning Martin Clinus. Martin, thank you. Always a pleasure, Richard. Uh, we're always delighted to have Richard Gordon back on the show. Thank you, Richard. No, that's all. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And a solid 7 or 8 out of 10 on debut to Simon Cattle. Thanks very much, Richard. We'll be back next week. Hopefully looking back at victory against Motherwell to properly kickstart the season. Good night and come on you Reds.